Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. We're going to post a two-part interview with Dr. Sam Fielendorf about heterogeneity. The first part will include some principles in managing for biodiversity, and the second part will focus more on what the implications are for grazing management if we're managing landscapes for heterogeneity. My guest today on the Art of Range is Sam Fielendorf. Uh, Sam is at Oklahoma State University and is the Grundike Chair in Wildlife Management. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tip. I'm glad to be here. Uh, as you might be able to tell, because my lips are a little cold, my southern accent comes out just a bit. I grew up in the Ozarks of northern Arkansas and initially came to the University of Idaho to study wildlife biology. Uh, I had done an internship with the Corps of Engineers there working with a wildlife biologist doing habitat management, uh, mostly patch burns focused on wild turkeys, uh, on the land that they owned around the, the two big lakes there in, in northern Arkansas, Norfolk and Bull Shoals. And I really enjoyed the integration of plants and wildlife and people. And uh, when I got to the University of Idaho, I was introduced to rangeland ecology, and it was more in line with, with my interests than uh, I guess the version of wildlife biology that seemed to prevail in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, at the time, that seemed to be largely preserving wildlife populations by removing humans from the equation. And I liked the idea of range as being what seemed to be a, a truly integrative discipline that uh, that kind of put all that together and didn't focus on, on one in particular. Uh, how did you get into wildlife management and end up in this um, professor position in Oklahoma. Well, thanks, Tip. Uh, that's interesting. I didn't know all of that about you. Um, I uh, I started school at Angelo State University in West Texas, and I had an interest in agriculture, and I, I uh, had a, a background in uh, a lot of things outdoors, and I enjoyed uh, traveling through the West. Uh, with my father, we would fly fish and just enjoy the outdoors. And I, uh, found range to be the most attractive major during that, uh, uh, time period and eventually decided to go to graduate school. And I developed a real passion for large landscapes. And I never really had much of a background in wildlife in school. I was fortunate that eventually, after working here at Oklahoma State for a while, a uh, one of the endowed chairs, the person in charge of it, was uh, well-versed that, in reality, the best way to manage wildlife in this part of the world is to do range management on private land. So uh, they had a strong connection and were willing for that to be a focus of the chair. So how long have you been here at Oklahoma State? Uh, 22 years. Well, I don't know whether you're like me. I, I feel like the longer I go, the fewer pat answers I have. And 
I, I thank you before, but I'll thank you again on the air for blowing up my brain with these papers about heterogeneity. <laughs> I've been studying Rangeland ecology for about 25 years now, if you count the start of my undergraduate work. And uh, yeah, I feel like I just took another giant leap away from easy answers. Uh, you you say in, in the uh, book chapter that you wrote on heterogeneity as the basis for management that that this idea has only recently become appreciated as a component of ecological systems and adopting it as a guiding principle for ecosystem management has been slow. Uh, obstacles to heter heter heterogeneity-based management and policy stem from problems associated with understanding the concept, inconsistent definitions and measurement, as well as a general affinity for homogeneous landscapes. I feel like that uh, sets it up pretty good. So I'd, I'd like to talk about some general principles uh, on, on why heterogeneity is important, and we'll need to start by defining heterogeneity, uh, how it relates to uh, rangeland resiliency. I sort of feel like resiliency is rapidly becoming a word kind of like sustainability, where it starts to lose meaning. So we'll try to define it and then talk a bit about grazing management, uh, which is where I'd like to end up. Uh, so let me let me make an attempt at a summary of what I think I understand <clears throat> about what you've said, and then we'll and then we'll get into the weeds. Uh, I would say that everybody agrees that healthy rangelands provide a wide array of ecological and social goods and services. Uh, that rangeland resiliency describes uh, the the robustness of the natural mechanisms that allow land to continue providing those goods and services over time, uh, both with and through disturbance, uh, that disturbances are necessary processes to create botanical diversity, but also a, a changing diversity across space and time, and that the dis disturbances that we impose on the landscape uh, by human activity should avoid, uh, it can be beneficial in terms of promoting that uh, spatial heterogeneity, but should avoid pushing ecosystems over these thresholds, these tipping points into new degraded stable states. And I guess that would be a more a persistent disturbance rather than, uh, I remember in one of my ecology classes at University of Idaho, uh, somebody somewhere distinguished between press disturbances and pulse disturbances. And that really stuck with me. Uh, and I think the example that was given was that a, a press disturbance would be like a poorly built road, dirt road next to a stream, and the constant sediment input into that stream uh, as a press disturbance fundamentally changes the nature of that stream because it, it never goes away. But that something like a rain on snow event where you have a giant pulse uh, that you know blows through the riparian system, you know, ripping out trees and reshaping stream banks and then goes away. Uh, it, it there's enough resiliency to recover from that as long as you've got the right plant communities and processes in place uh, to, to rebuild after that pulse. And so in, with human-caused disturbance, my take is that we, we want to offer things that are more like a, a pulse than a permanent press uh, that 
change things long term. Now you can, now you can <laughs> take that apart. Wow. Well, shoot, Tip. It sounds like you have uh, you have the story, and we can just end this podcast right now. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I mean you're right about about everything you said. I I uh, I, I feel like uh, uh, I do. I agree with the terminology challenge, and even heterogeneity is sometimes you know it's like it's like you make. Some somewhere a word appears, and next thing you know, we've all uh, distorted its meaning, and no one really knows what it means. But um, in general, I I guess the uh, short answer to all of that is is that in my mind, I agree with you that I don't know as much as I used to know. I jokingly say that when I uh, was working on my PhD, I knew exactly what an ecosystem was, and now I have no idea. And uh, I struggle with that all the time. And and it's led me to sort of embrace uh, an idea of ecological humility. And uh, the idea being that if you manage for, say, six different vegetation types, then you're six times less likely to be entirely wrong and that that's actually more attractive than it sounds. And that sort of contrasted to the sort of engineering perspective where we know exactly what we want the world to be and we make all of the world look like that. So I struggle with those uh, in the same ways probably that you do because we, we have similar backgrounds, but uh but I do think that one important con- uh, uh, context is to think about well, where did this discipline come from and where are the principles that we now think are normal, where did they come from and what was the context of those at the time? And I tend to think of that. And I was fortunate in my graduate career to be around people that had a good historical perspective. and could sort of tell me what was Dykstra House actually talking about. In fact, Dykstra House was in the building when I first started graduate school. And, um, and you know, so a lot of those things that seem incorrect today are just in a different context. There's a reason that they did that and, and came up with the principles that they came up with. And it's just that some of our uh, desires from rangelands have changed, and some of those principles may not apply as uniformly as they once did. So, for example, sort of the the range condition argument that you know, if you reduce stocking rates, you can get an improvement in the plant community, and that's fairly linear. A lot of that was developed in the context of uh, not having a range profession really at the time and that a lot of land was just really heavily grazed. And so it's it's a it's in today's standards, it's grossly oversimplified. But in reality, at the time, that simplification may have been essential just to get a message across. Right. There was a there's often kind of a social lag time to react to, you know, real 
abuses of land, and there was real degradation that happened, especially in the cattle boom in the late 1800s. And we were, yeah, I guess the movement toward a, a do-no-harm grazing management policy or paradigm uh, logically came out of that, where really the only good option was to reduce cattle numbers and, and cause improvement. And then it, it's assumed that that causality would hold true um, you know, all the time. Right. And, and it, and, and it largely doesn't. And I remember when I first started out there, the argument was the solution to everything was reducing stocking rate. And often that is a solution, but, uh, but it, you know, it's not going to cure the fact that your grassland turned into a juniper woodland, uh, that's not going to go back by reducing the stocking rate. Right. Or the idea that, but then the idea that removing all the animals permanently would take us back to some pre-Columbian ecological nirvana. Exactly. That probably didn't exist. Exactly. It, it almost certainly didn't exist. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the, the big ideas that I feel like is foundational for managing for heterogeneity is that variation in nature is important, that that's the driver. And it's not just uh, an obstacle to overcome with management effort to get us toward uh, what you call the middle, you know, managing toward the middle, managing toward the mean. Uh, can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. You know, uh, uh, one way that I often talk about this is to beat up on my own profession, which is doing doing scientific research. And I often point to the fact that most of our scientific paradigms came from something similar to an agronomy farm sort of experimental design where the goal is to remove variability except for the variability associated with say the fertilizer rates on different plots. Right. And, and so the, the take home from that from a scientist is that if you want to exist in that culture, then you have to have to find a way to deal with variability. And the way you deal with it is you get rid of most of it, which led to a lot of really small scale studies that, um, that, uh, led to what I argue is a fairly simplified understanding of uh, nature. And uh, I would argue, I mean, there are some really good, just as a um, disclaimer, we, we did acquire some really good knowledge from those studies and they still are important. They just aren't really embracing the idea that we need to understand variability in space and time. And it seems like we even started to understand that we need longer term studies at, uh, before we started to understand that we actually need larger scaled studies. And, and of course, it's really hard to, to do a large scale study. So that aspect is that science hasn't done us any favors in trying to understand variability. But then on top of that, I like to uh, uh, point out that the public it, it doesn't really deal very well with uh, variance. And we've even done some social studies where we partnered with real social scientists and 
did surveys and looked at whether people were comfortable with uh, heterogeneity or not. And, and, you know, just even practical examples, I always tell the, the joke that I uh, was mowing my yard and thinking about this one day and I uh, decided it was ridiculous that I was mowing one grass species all at the same height and uh yeah, weekly exactly and so and i might have been having some adult beverages so i uh decided to raise and lower the mower uh sort of randomly and do some designs in the yard and try and start a new <laughs> trend but needless to say that uh well let's just say i had to remow the yard uh i learned that that the public does not really appreciate heterogeneity so it's not just in range management, it's actually complexity is something hard to deal with. And it seems like in, at least in European cultures, we, uh, uh, don't, uh, enjoy heterogeneity necessarily. And we like our parks to have edge sidewalks and. Right. Um, so we try to make our rangelands look like an English lawn. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this might have been something that I heard you talk about at a Society for Range Management conference a couple of years ago. The idea that there's something lost in translation if we do research at the scale of your kitchen tabletop and then extrapolate that to you know range management units that are the size of a county in much of the East. Right, and I and you know I. I think uh, you can look at almost any uh, parameter of interest, uh, animal behavior or uh, or fire behavior or anything like that. And you can see that if you uh, study that at really small homogenous scales uh, that you run into problems and uh, or you you might draw conclusions that aren't exactly correct. And, you know, an example of that was when I first started this whole patch fire and grazing animals can go where they want, the pyrocarbivory studies. Uh, I ran into trouble from scientific reviewers that, uh, well, you know, this treatment is neither burned nor unburned because you only burn part of it. So we don't know mm -hmm. what to call that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I said, well, how about, you know, rangeland. <laughs> and uh, so, so it is, it seems like that we're well rooted in sort of this unrealistic perspective of uh, strongly controlled studies. Right. And, and trying to produce, uh, trying to get to, I, I feel like this is a, a, a problem both directions. You know, if, if you're trying to do any kind of natural resource study, one, it's really difficult to get to ceteris paribus where you're holding everything constant except for the one variable you want to test. That's extraordinarily difficult to do, period, in the natural environment. And so we reduce the size of the, you know, we reduce the, the spatial scale of the study to try to be able to accommodate that. Um, but then going the other direction as well, what does it look like to do any kind of a scientific study if you're not holding everything else constant? 
you know, now, now what you've got is a case study. <laughs> exactly. It's, which it's, is describing what's there. It's very difficult. And I do think there are some things that we can do when we get to larger scales. So, for example, one of the things is we can start to look for mechanisms rather than just the patterns. So, uh, you know, I, I, I find that, uh, you know, some of the debate about uh, what grazing system is the best and so forth, we sort of uh, want to criticize small scale studies, which is fair enough. But then we have the challenge you mentioned from large scale studies. And it seems to me that sort of an integrated approach where we do the large scale ranch relevant studies, but we actually test the mechanisms with fairly controlled studies that correspond with those large studies. And, and it's really difficult to do that because of the, you know, the university tenure system and uh, publisher parish and all those sorts of things. But, uh, but I do think that's something to strive for. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think that's a good, a good transition into talking about a pattern in process. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, discuss just a bit uh, what you lay out in the paper as the four foundational principles of rangeland management. Just to uh, just to talk about that, and then and then talk about how this may, how these ideas may. Uh, be a little different or lead to a different kind of grazing management. Uh, you say in this paper that uh, the the utilitarian roots of range management that promoted protecting the soil and vegetation from disturbance and maintaining the output of products uh, like forage led to four foundational principles of range management that focused on manipulating livestock grazing because that's the main feels like that's the main tool we have. Uh, those principles are one to maintain a proper stocking rate two to achieve proper distribution of animals in space three to achieve proper forage utilization in time and four to match the the kind and class of animals to the the desired plant community i think that's a pretty accurate description of you know what i would have laid out to a group of ranchers on on grazing management, even though I would say most of them, at least in the semi-arid West and much of Eastern Washington uh, and Oregon and Southern Idaho, you know, where I work is uh, pretty dry. Landscapes don't really permit that kind of management. And so I, I, I sense that people are either frustrated with the inability to achieve uh, those goals, meaning even distribution of animals and even utilization, or they just or they 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 give up uh, and apply, you know, whatever whatever stocking rate feels appropriate based on their own ideas of how much is right to leave at the end of the year or or whatever, you know. But you're you're saying that disturbances like fire, flood, drought grazing are important inputs that we need to maintain and that we need to have them in various uh, degrees of intensity and spatial patterns across the landscape. How do you, 
how do you manage for that? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, <clears throat> or is it the wrong question? Well, it, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll answer it this way. Uh, you know, the old saying that uh, when you're digging a hole, the first thing you do is put the shovel down. Uh, I uh, feel like we've been managing to try and promote uniform utilization and a constant uh, or a uh, uh, excellent range condition for each site. And that's sort of been our goal uh, everywhere, regardless of what our objectives are, to be honest. And in fact, I've worked with wildlife refuges where their goal, their objective was to manage for diversity of plants and animals. And I would ask them then what is their management what is the target that they're hoping to achieve with their range sampling? And the answer is excellent range condition everywhere. And that's just not correct. And, uh, right. And then what is meant by excellent, you know, right. if you ask 10 range scientists, we might get 27 different answers. Is exactly. That exactly. Of similarity to some historic plant community, or is that lots of tall grass everywhere? Yeah, exactly. And, um, and so, uh, you know, in that example, I tried to get them to recognize, well, you actually need some areas that are pretty, that have some significant disturbance on them. And you should figure out how much of that landscape ought to be that way. And then other areas that maybe haven't been disturbed for a while. And, uh, but, but I, I do think that the, the propers, as I call them, <laughs> the four principles, I, st I still think they're largely relevant uh, and important to think about. I just think that they become much less useful when you start to think about the world as highly spatial, uh, highly variable in space and time. And, and so... I, uh, uh, you know, for example, if we just take the one that is clearly really important and that the proper stocky rate and, you know, you take a, a ranch in your part of the world that's 20,000 acres, what in the world would the proper stock, it, it, the principle is probably correct that that's an important management decision, but how constant would it be from year to year? Uh, would be highly variable. And I don't think our profession has really embraced that. And one of the reasons to uh, sort of get a little more philosophical, I don't know if you've ever seen a paper by Holling and Meffy, 1996 in conservation biology. I don't uh, think so. It's a great, a great paper. It's one of those that uh, I don't, I don't know that there's any data in it. And it's just one of those that makes you think a little bit. But they argue that there's a, there should be a golden rule of natural resource management, and the golden rule is that management should strive to retain critical types and ranges of natural variation to maintain resiliency. And so this is 1996. Well, I, I don't. Uh, I don't know that it's realistic to try and include the whole range of variability, but the re the recognition that that variability is important is critical. And in fact, they talked about it in terms of uh, natural resource pathology, where there's this top-down control over uh, what 
this piece of property ought to look like that somebody somewhere else determines and there it may not be relevant from an ecological standpoint um or even possible or even possible for sure and uh and certainly it is impossible every year and and so it seems to me that uh at least in north america and even on private land but that uh that that natural resource pathology of sort of the top down seems to be as big of a problem as us understanding the natural systems and how variable they ought to be. So how do you get someone to decide that this is a well-managed ranch or not when they could obviously take, if you promote heterogeneity, then they could go out and take a picture somewhere of a heavily disturbed area and uh, paste it all over the internet and talk about how bad of a manager you were. Right. Yeah, I have cons- I have reservations in general about the wisdom of of assuming that we know enough to manage toward some designer ecosystem. Uh, I, I like the idea of prescription grazing, probably because I think it, that it the application of it right now tends to promote heterogeneity in, in a way that maybe we didn't before. But, you know, I'm in extension and probably across land grant universities, you know, we live in the world of planning with the end in mind. And I think, I think that idea relates to a, I guess, a, a general um, engineering paradigm that characterized most of the 20th century in America where we figure we know enough to, you know, to work toward whatever end goal we think is appropriate. But that, I don't know, it seems like that incorporates a dangerously large dose of hubris of thinking that we can manipulate all the right variables to generate, you know, a specific set of landscape conditions for a particular species or a particular human need. You know, there, there's a lot that we know, but uh, you know, going back to your idea of ecological humility, I'm reluctant to adopt a stance that borders on claiming omniscience. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And not to mention that just the more we learn, the, uh, you know, the more we realize that uh, you need a lot more variability in the world in order, you know, that, 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 that is more the norm. You know, I remember when I first, uh, started thinking about wildlife, uh, and I was part of a group that had grant money to study how we can promote grassland birds because everyone was scared about grassland birds. And so I just dove into the data and my first, the first thought was, well, look, all these birds have different habitat requirements. How in the world are we going to manage for all of them? And, you know, and you can't, you can't develop a prescription that says we're going to improve wildlife on rangelands because uh, it not, not if that prescription is the way we've traditionally done prescriptions where it's, you know, got a grass height target of, you know, six inches on average or something to that effect. It's, uh, it's just not very useful. And it's a little bit, 
uh, arrogant, in my opinion, uh, to sort of think that we can do that. And that's what's led to sort of the idea, well, if we can put these processes back and understand how they worked historically, not that we're going to go back to 1491, because that's ridiculous, but, um, but if we could actually understand how they work, then we'll at least know when we want to manage for things like grassland birds, what sort of uh, conditions ought to occur and the processes that might be important for those. So when you say pattern and process, uh, what all is included in your, in your definitions of those words? Well, you know, it's funny. I, uh, um, some years ago, there was a big symposium on uh, uh, ecological site descriptions, and there was a push to make them process-based. And I was asked to talk in that symposium, and I started looking up the uh, definition of process, and I quickly found that there really wasn't a very good one out there. Similar to your question, it's like, well, what does this actually mean? But I did find one that I liked, and I like it because it's really simple, and it was it – was, uh, and I don't remember where it came from, but uh, it was uh, all of the ing words associated with ecosystems. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to steal something, forget where you got it. Exactly, exactly. So uh, nutrient cycling, you know, infiltrating. So it's sort of the action items of ecosystems. But the crazy thing about that is it does get quickly oversimplified because erosion, you know, is a process. I guess it would be eroding. Yeah. And, you know, and that's not necessarily something that we want as a lot of, and we may not even want as much as would have occurred historically. And, um, and so it's kind of a dangerous assumption uh, um, because I do think when you start to say we're going to put pattern and process back like it was, all of a sudden you realize, uh, ooh, we don't really want it like that. And that the goods and services that we all want, because we're constrained by scale and we don't have as much land as we used to have, we have more people that we need to feed, we can't tolerate the Nebraska sandhills to be blowing away uh, for a decade or something to that effect. And if you're the guy that owns 50 acres, you don't want your place to be the blow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, And so I think... The idea really behind pattern and processes, and, and a lot of this goes back to people I've known that are, are practical in, in managing the world. So, for example, Bob Hamilton runs the Tallgrass Prairie Preserve in Oklahoma. And it gets overwhelming if you're trying to manage for diversity of everything. You know, you get 8,000 8, graduate students monitoring their favorite species. and uh, Bob uh, is real quick to sort of say it's more like a, a run and shoot offense, if you like a football analogy, but it's it's much less organized and uh, and that you basically understand general principles and then you let the the patterns and the processes work their way out. And not everybody could do what Bob does because he's got different constraints, but I I feel like a little bit more of that uh, acknowledgement that there's noise in these systems uh, 
and that as long as you're within this range of uh if if there's some degree of normality if you're in that area then you know it's probably okay uh to some degree right any movement away from the drive toward the middle would be beneficial you know we as i'm thinking about this i i feel like you see that across the spectrum of agriculture you know from large extensive animal husbandry systems like rangeland grazing on 100,000 acres of desert to uh, you know more say in- intensive agronomy like row crop farming where you've got deep soils and 40 inch precipitation but uh, across that spectrum we apply fencing weed control brush control flood control herbicide insecticide fungicide to try to manage toward some really specific idea that across the whole thing and you're saying any movement away from that is going to likely produce some beneficial heterogeneity yeah i think that's right i think that's a good way to describe it actually and uh and and i would i am not suggesting that that all those things that that have tended to be used to push us to the middle can't be used. In fact, some of them can be used differently to even promote heterogeneity, but the way they've been traditionally used, uh, it's sort of under this uniformity paradigm. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.